Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll start the presentation in about one minute. We're uh, waiting for people to get in and get settled. Everyone, just to let you know, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. Uh, we're still waiting for people to get in and get settled. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety Health Magazine webcast, The Cost of Doing Nothing, sponsored by KPA. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety Health Magazine. I'm moderating today's event. Thank you so much for joining us, and before we get started, there are a few housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council of the Magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. If you have a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and press the send button. We welcome your questions at any time during today's event. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We might not get to every question, but the good news is unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you may re also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today are Jade Brainerd and Darren Boyd. Jade is the product director for KPA's EHS Software Solutions and has been with the organization for 14 plus years, focusing on providing customers with turnkey safety management software solutions. Jade works with many kinds of organizations, including construction, energy, manufacturing, and insurance to understand how technology can be leveraged to effectively manage safety, reduce risk, and keep companies compliant with an ever-evolving regulatory environment. Darren is the Senior Vice President for New Markets at KPA, leading the company's growth strategy and expansion into new industries. He also oversees the direction of KPA's EHS software with a focus on innovative new feature development based on client input and market demands. Before joining KPA, Darren co-founded iScout, a health and safety-focused software system. And before iScout, he was the Vice President for Safety and Compliance for Oklahoma City-based Crescent Services, LLC. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Darren, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Very good. Thanks, Alan. Um, and by the way, you've got a, a fantastic voice for radio. So I've got a I've got a face made for radio. Hopefully, my voice will will uh, will hold off okay here. Well, well, good good afternoon, good morning, wherever you're uh, at here today. We certainly appreciate the opportunity to to share some insights a little bit on the topic of the what is the cost of doing nothing. And really, nothing earth-shattering I don't think we're going to talk about today. Hopefully, there is some nice perspective, um, some good information, and, and encouraging uh, the group just on kind of move-forward opportunities for, for continuous improvement. But kind of breaking the agenda down, we're going to talk about really what does it mean to do nothing. We're going to talk about the cost of doing nothing. And then, of course, the, uh, the ROI 
on safety programs, and then just this idea of continuous improvement that really we're all somewhere on this spectrum of a safety, you know, growth journey within our organizations and certainly opportunity for, for all of us to improve. Um, not, not any particular group ever truly arrives. There's, there's always an opportunity to be better tomorrow than we are today. And we're going to have an opportunity to talk about that here a little bit. So even just kind of moving on here, the, the idea of, you know, what, what, what is a per, what would a, in a perfect world, um, if we could just map out the world is right. What does a workplace environment look like from a health and safety perspective? Well, first and foremost, the easy answer is nobody gets hurt. Um, we're incident free. We can do our tasks, complete the job, go home safely. And there's no fear um, or, or potential risk of somebody getting hurt. That would be pretty awesome. Uh, assets, you know, those tend to get in the way at times, but if those were indestructible and damage was just not something that, that occurred, that would be a perfect world uh, scenario. State-of-the-art resources are just readily available, whether that's personal protective equipment, um, you know, safety uh, equ equipment, um, you know, just the, the various resources that we need to do our jobs. If those were walk up to a, a, a machine and pull a lever and here, here's what I get and I need it, when it whenever I need it. So just that being available, contractors, clients, always complying by the rules. Our employees are on time, trustworthy, and always fit for duty. And managers 100% of the time make the right decision. That would be euphoria, I think, for all of us. But looking at what actually what we deal with, what's the reality of the workplace? So my wife and I, once upon a time, this goes back to, you know, the the, the spring of the year 2000, when the first survivor uh, season came out, there's actually been 43 of these since then, which is, is a little bit wild. But this quote always comes to mind to me a little bit. Uh, Mark Burnett, the the producer of the Survivor series, among many other reality TV shows, his, his quote regarding Survivor was nothing will ever be perfect and nothing can be totally planned. Um, and that was really like the genesis, like there was a few reality shows out there, but this was like really the explosion of reality TV and just how will people respond when there's no script? Um, you know, and really, we all kind of learned some of the best TV is unscripted. Um, but but what's interesting at the same time is uh, unscripted is like incredibly organized. Um, I mean, the, the the planning and the process for a show uh, takes an entire crew and they actually are doing a lot of scripting to put, um, you know, the, the contestants in a position for them just to respond accordingly. Um, but, you know, this quote, you know, nothing can ever be perfect and nothing can ever be totally planned. The, the truth of it is, I think we can describe perfect. We kind of just did that on the slide before. So we, we know what perfect looks like and how do we plan for that? Uh, maybe we can't achieve 100%, 100% of the time, but how close can we we get to that? So just kind of framing this out just a little bit as, as we move move along here. So doing nothing. I think, you know, the, the, the title of this session is the cost of doing nothing. Let's break down, uh, what is, what is doing nothing? Um, you know, what exactly, what exactly does that mean? So there's probably, 
you know, we could sit here and spend the whole rest of the session just talking about what nothing could potentially mean. Here's a handful of just some low hanging, you know, fruit that we we thought would be relevant right off the bat across the board. Um, no formal training or task competency, kind of a, a they'll figure it out attitude. That's literally nothing in place for that. Um, void of leadership. You know, when when positive leadership doesn't exist, the hole's going to get filled in by something or someone. Um, so when nothing is from a leadership perspective, and I think all of these um, really an indecision is a decision, you know, inaction is an action. And so just because something's not being done in these categories, I think for the most part across the board, there's going to be a replacement. There's going to be a substitute that that fills in. And, and oftentimes it's not what is the most desired thing. Uh, reactive planning. You know, this certainly cripples our ability to mitigate or eliminate hazards. Um, it, it really can set a project off the rails. We're just unprepared for today's work um, and doing nothing certainly is 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 planning focused when that doesn't happen. Ignoring lessons learned, you know, um, just not paying attention to the past, learning from that and being better moving forward. Unaware of work worker acts and or conditions. Don't quote me on this one, but I have read someplace somewhere that, you know, 98% of, of unwanted events that take place kind of stem from unsafe acts, unsafe conditions. A lot of times at, you know, the human side of things coming into play. Um, so just being aware of, you know, those acts or conditions or being oblivious to it. I think there's, there's really kind of two sides. It's either you truly are oblivious or you just don't care. And in both cases, that's kind of a do nothing mentality. Um, a, a shoulder shrug attitude, you know, kind of an, oh, well, uh, it is what it is. You know, that's one of my least favorite uh, sayings, but you know, that attitude is a do nothing approach uh, to workplace safety. And then lack of communication or or feedback. You know, when communication breaks down, does not take place, there's a lot of problems that can happen. Um, just It's just unknown as we get into certain situations. And then feedback as well. There's a quote there at the bottom of the page that nothing is more damaging to a safety culture than the sound of crickets. If, if we're fostering a, a, a workplace where we want feedback and information, we want this open channel of communication to answer questions, to address issues, and, and somebody actually does that, if they take, take us up on it and they're going to say, hey, I've got a question or I'm going to raise my hand with an issue and there's nothing back in response to them, I don't know if there's anything more damaging to a safety culture than, than nothing. Um, so that's just kind of a frame out. Again, we could spend, you know, much more time just kind of adding to this list. Uh, but just a few of them, again, to kind of frame out what that potential do nothing is. So why why some do nothing? Um, you know, kind of problem problems. You just kind of, it kind of maybe goes back to the shoulder shrug mentality a little bit. But oftentimes, and we see this as we try to introduce new safety initiatives, I think sometimes technology um, you know, you put you put both of those two things together and there just tends to be pushback. And these are some of the reasons why we might hear the workforce, the operations team, um, you know, push back on on just not doing something. And that the first one is it's going to slow us down. You know, when when groups are very job focused, I think they're they're tunnel visioned at times to get the job done. I think that's a great characteristic to have. But 
there are things we need to make sure we're incorporating into getting into getting it done. So focused on the job, anxious to meet a deadline, eager to complete it and just go home. Um, I think there's some impatience in there at times, but this idea of don't give me one more piece of paper to fill out because I'm busy doing the job. Doing something is going to cost. Um, there's budgetary constraints. Um, maybe they're unaware of the actual return on an investment they'll see by doing something. Um, so the, you know, the, the, the rationale of not doing anything being a, a financial um, related or, or just unaware of the consequences and the costs that unplanned events really have on us. And Jade's going to kind of go into that here uh, in just, in just a little bit. And then we don't believe anything bad will happen. Um, I'll just keep it on this slide. This is perfect. But anything bad, nothing bad will happen. I think there's an attitude of, I've always done it this way. I'm good. Um, they don't really recognize the act is unsafe. Um, I think there is kind of this macho, too cool attitude at times as well. And what is interesting, quick comment, is just like, I think I think a near miss, kind of the fruit produced from a near, near miss event to the actual affected person is is incredible with their approach and mentality to that event moving forward. And so unless you've had that experience, sometimes it's just as easy to do nothing and have no change. So this, this slide here is to combat that theory a little bit. Um, this may be new for some, uh, some may have, have heard this uh, before, but in, in, in 1853 at the World's Fair, it was in New York City, um, at the, the, the palace was this, this crystal palace was this new facility that they had built. Uh, there was an inventor by the name of Elisha Otis. If you have ridden on an elevator, probably anywhere in the country, maybe even your own office buildings, you might look and Otis is probably uh, the brand that you're going to see inside of the elevator. But um, prior to 1953, you know, when you looked at real estate across the country, the, you didn't see many many buildings beyond four or five stories. It was just rare. Um, and there was reasons for that. One, people didn't want to climb, you know, the stairs to get up to the upper floors. And they were terrified if it had an elevator, they were terrified to ride it because they felt it was, it was unsafe. So at that time, the most expensive real estate were the bottom floors and the, the cheapest, you know, you can get a deal on, on the penthouse. Um, well, 1953 in the exhibit hall, uh, Elisha Otis essentially had, you can kind of see in this picture, there's a, a person on the very top that cuts a rope. The elevator brake um, enables itself and he stops about an inch below the fall uh, and just says the term, all is safe. And that one small little feature, the, the comfort and confidence with a safety device that worked um, created this explosion in the real estate market and in in, in cities across the country. Uh, in 1953, there were only a few buildings that were five stories or taller. By 1890, there were 10 bu buildings taller than 10 stories. 1990, there's 65 buildings. 1908, there's 538 buildings that would be considered skyscrapers. And that real estate flipped upside down. The most expensive became the top and you could get deals cut on the lower floors. So just a, when you look at the, you know, something is going to slow us down or the cost of doing something when done right and the right element put into place, they, there can be an explosion of growth, an explosion of operational efficiency 
um, an explosion of dollars that can be earned, you know, just by that confidence level being put into place. No different than the Golden Gate Bridge when they were running behind, ended up putting a netting system in. The confidence gave their workers the ability to move forward and catch up on their timeline. So a little bit of a misconception to that, but I always, I love this story and have shared it several times, but I uh, just wanted to include that on uh, today's today's call. So now we're going to shift here just a little bit. Um, and I've kind of honed in on doing nothing and and just kind of kind of framing that out a little bit. Now we get into the the good analytic stuff, the more intelligent and that's where Jade's going to come into play. So I'll pass it on over. Well, thanks, Darren. I don't know about good. Maybe maybe boring is the the, the better word, but um, it's it's key to our our conversation today, and that's evaluating the cost. And you know, for what it's worth, I would definitely say you have a voice for radio. I know I would tune in, um, especially hearing stories like that with the, the elevator bill. I showed us very interesting. Um, so yeah, let's let's jump into what does doing nothing cost? Because you know there is a cost to it. Um, that is another misconception that that you know doing nothing is it does doesn't require a budget. Um, there there is certainly something to that. Um, so there's five items that we're gonna talk through today, um, and and how that it will impact that overall cost, and that's time and productivity lost, um, regulatory fines that will be more at risk. And we'll talk about some, some changes coming in the, the regulatory landscape, um, um, accident expenses, and we'll look at some examples of, you know, um, you know, cost avoidance and, and how, you know, if, if these accidents take place, you know, what, what truly is that going to cost your business? Um, insurance premiums, how that's impacted um, as a result of those accidents accidents and then overall company reputation and that's a little bit harder to to quantify the the overall cost but obviously has a big impact on um corporate expense and um, um profitability so starting with time and productivity loss so um you know time is money we we this is a good place to start because um you know not doing anything um you know requires that there's there's manual processes and reactive processes in place um so it is going to uh, have you know and those are inefficient and time consuming processes um so whether that's using excel spreadsheets or filling information out, out on paper um duplication um between you know capturing information in the field versus back in the office um, and then and then completing information on on separate um, uh, reports and things like that. Having disconnected teams, um, lack of communication um, and, and streamlining that information, and then just lack of overall data and visibility. So not having a system in place or investing in a program um, really um, attributes to a missed opportunity um, to really see, you know, below the surface of, of what's going on and and target those key areas. Um, there's lots been lots of surveys done about you know time and productivity loss, but um, one survey conducted by West Monroe shows that an average manager, you know, safety manager, spends up to half their work week on administrative tasks. I don't know if that resonates with any of you. I know with um, a lot of our customers that use our EHS software solution, you know, one of the biggest um, 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 
points that uh, they they used with you know convincing leadership to invest in to EHS software systems was that um, time savings and man hour savings. So instead of you know focusing on big issues, you know EHS directors are forced to just waste time transferring data between spreadsheets, tracking down different documents, compiling reports. Um, that effort is then duplicated. Um, possibly, you know, back in, in the office staff trying to um, compile that information um, and have workarounds to make up for a lack of system availability. Um, and then that key point of really miss opportunity with that lack of data and visibility. What more could you be doing if you were able to um, implement more effective, efficient processes, capture data one time, um, and then be able to visualize, you know, where where the the um, the key points of, of you know major loss are occurring, where you should be focusing your safety efforts. Uh, what more you, could you be doing if you could eliminate some of that administrative burden? Um, so time and productivity loss that you know as it pencils out in paper is going to look different for every organization depending on you know the size of your teams, the size of your how many locations you have. Um, and your current processes that you put into place and, and, and the efficiencies that could be gained. Um, but, you know, goes without saying that this is a key important item to evaluating the total cost of doing nothing. Um, we'll take a look next at regulatory fines. So, um, you know, we're, Whereas regulatory fines may not seem um, like, a, like a big number when it comes to you know, individual citations, that can and will change. So um, if you're not already aware, um, OSHA's um, making some adjustments to policy that is starting March 25th this year. Um, and the policy change will allow citations for each instance of a violation rather than combining these um, into, you know, kind of grouped together into under a single citation. So previous enforcement policy allowed for like several serious or other than serious violations to be grouped together. Now these will be counted as individual citations. So um, you know, currently there's on the, on the green box there, maximum penalty amounts by violation type. So willful or repeat violations, $145,027, serious $14,502, and other than serious $14,000. So, um, you know, calculating the cost of just cost avoidance of um, some of these top um, 10 most frequently cited citations. So if you're not Familiar with this visual here, there's a link and we'll share the slides following this, but every year um, OSHA uh, um, distributes their the, for the previous year, what are the top 10 most frequently cited violations and these rarely change too much, maybe a little bit of the order of uh, the top citations, but for the most part, um, they're, they're all on the top 10 year over year. So citations related to fall protection, um, respiratory protection, ladders, um, hazard communication, scaffolding, um, um, fall protection training, um, control of hazardous energy, lockout tagout, um, eye and face protection, powered industrial trucks, machinery, and machine guarding. So those were the top 10 that were announced um, um, last year. And you know, do, do any of these resonate with your business in areas of potential exposure? So starting this year for each individual citation, um, either will for repeat or serious, those could be the, the potential um, fines. Um, so that's just 
that's another area to, to consider as, as we look at the total cost of doing nothing is, you know, what are you exposing your business to as it relates to regulatory citations and fines? And we can't talk about the cost of um, um, doing nothing or, or the cost of, you know, lack of um, implementing processes and, and safety programs without talking about TCOR, total cost of risk. And, you know, that comes down to our accident expenses. So, you know, heaven forbid something does happen, we, ha we have an injury, um, uh, um, um, for, for our workforce, what it does that cost of that risk look like? And this is, as Darren mentioned, an age-old concept. Um, it's not new to anyone, I'm sure, but still holds true. Um, and I love the analogy of the iceberg because it is, is so relevant to you know, many different things in life. But um, very relevant to safety and cost of risk. So, you know, the tip of the iceberg always represents those direct costs and things that we we know. They're um, they're they're you know, easy to see. We when something happens, we have our our insurance costs. We have you know wage and productivity losses. We have maybe some in, uh, administrative expenses, medical expenses. But it's what's beneath the surface that has a much bigger impact and a much higher cost um, to the business. So that's things like, you know, time loss for work stoppage, um, damage to tools, equipment, things that we need to replace, um, administrative time spent by supervisors and other safety personnel, um, replacement worker training costs. So if somebody's injured, either they're, they're out on lost time or, or restricted duty, we still have to you know, replace that individual um, to keep production moving. Um, so what does that cost to get that individual up to speed? Um, lost team productivity, damage to reputation, which is you know the tip of the iceberg there at the bottom, but um, could have a, a major potential impact on the total cost and, and um, uh, financial impact to the business, um, depending on, on the case. So there's also, if you're not familiar with, OSHA has come up with a safety pays calculator, um, which I think is, is very helpful. It really helps kind of bring to light what a total cost in terms of that reputation impact or profitability um, an accident could have on your business. And, you know, they, they use this calculator here um, and demonstrate that uh, for your direct costs, your, your indirect costs ratio, um, kind of a, a breakdown here by, by direct costs can be, you know, four to five times um, your direct costs and it kind of goes down the line. So even your, your smaller incidents can have a greater impact um, on the business. You know, maybe there's, um, you know, maybe there's, there's, you know, deductible is lower for those smaller incidents, but they still require all the, the, the time and effort and, you know, that, that uh, below the surface sort of iceberg impact um, is still there. So um, yeah, T-Core is um, definitely important. We cannot have this conversation without talking about those um, those risk costs. And I know Darren's got a good example, as he always does for us, of kind of looking beneath the surface and um, um, kind of bring this to, um, you know, uh, have an, an analogy here uh, related to New York City. Yeah, this, this is showing the dad in me where I get a chance to show off some pictures taken on a recent trip. But I, I am a big, like I, I, 
I'm a big believer in, and and fan of that iceberg analogy, you know, the, as Jade described, like it's the issues that are above surface that we can clearly see, but what's subsurface, what, what's the, the attitudes and the actions and the conditions. And, you know, they say 30,000 unsafe acts eventually lead themselves up to a potential fatality. And so if we're really going to make a difference about what, what does above the surface look like for us, we have to attack and make the base, the bottom, the subsurface. Um, that's the, that's the lifeblood. So New York city walking around, we wife and I got a chance to go out there before Christmas and, you know, you, you're walking the streets and it's seven degrees outside and there's steam coming out of manholes and, and, you know, every which way. And so that just gets me thinking about just this, the stats of what's going on underneath the surface, 9,000 manhole covers, which I thought was pretty crazy. And 722 miles of subway tracks and you get four nearly four and a half million going people going through that on an annual basis but really the the stat that really jumped out was the 98,000 miles of utility cables so you know really the definition of utility that I use is just bene beneficial purposeful um you know when you look at the New York skyline you kind of take for granted what powers that it's it's what's going on beneath the surface you know one gas leak is going to shut down neighborhoods or entire city blocks um taking all of the visual away and it's 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 the it's the 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 pulse the what's going on underneath the surface we also had a chance to um to go through the world trade center uh memorial and you kind of get down in the actual bowels the original footprint of where those buildings were located and you see the image off to the right here of just these anchor sets along a, a large concrete wall. Well, on the other side of that is the Hudson River. And so we are, you know, several stories down. Um, fortunately, that held on that day and water didn't rush into everything underneath. Um, you know, the 722 miles of subway tracks could have been flooded by the Hudson River. But that strength, that, that, um, mitigations plan strategy you know that is unseen when you're looking at the skyline but just knowing that that's creating the strength for what's above again no different than the iceberg um just thought it was a an interesting kind of dynamic between the two that wanted to share today yeah thanks thanks for that example darren i mean as you're speaking we don't have a slide on this but you know, just focusing on what's beneath the surface and and the, the foundation, you know, you could also correlate this to the safety pyramid. I mean, also an age old concept, but by focusing on what's at the bottom of the pyramid, which are those unsafe acts, unsafe conditions, near misses, it's in turn going to help us in our prevention efforts with those more, more serious accidents, which lead to, you know, how we evaluate T-Core. And, you know, now we're going to talk about claims costs. So this is more you know, our, our direct costs, the, the tip of the iceberg above the surface, but um, important to to recognize, you know, some stats and trends and, and further calculate what those direct costs may cost your business. So there's a lot of data out there, um, but, you know, the National Council on Compensation Insurance is, is a good one to take a look at. Um, and, and what they report and they update this on, on an annual basis, but um, the recent report, which shows um, calculation of worker compensation costs by cause, and they break this down also by body part and, and injury nature, but um, just on average, the average cost per claims 
combined in or you know all types 2019 to 2020 was 41,353 dollars with the most costly insurance claim resulting from motor vehicle crashes at $85,000 per claim filed. So, you know, that's just one of the expenses in our in our total cost of risk is between medical and indemnity costs, what that just claim, that workers' compensation claim is going to, to cost us. So if you have, you know, employees that are, are driving around in company vehicles, um, that, that's something that is, could definitely be an exposure for you. Um, um, some of the other causes, you know, pretty high up on the list with burns at $54,173, falls or slips, $48,000 um, caught by. Um, so some big numbers there, um, it's important to take a look at. But take that a little bit further, um, just to look at some examples. I had mentioned before the tool that, OSHA has with the safety pays calculator, um, which, which I find interesting, but just to kind of help evaluate TCOR and whether you're putting together a, a business case to your to your CFO to help communicate ROI and um, you, you need to talk about cost avoidance as you're as you're putting together your ROI case. So just to put together some examples. Um, using this calculator, and there's a link to it at the bottom, but just the calculator estimates the impact on a company's profitability as a result of having these types of incidents occur. So um, on the site, you can select, okay, let's say that we have an employee that has a fracture um, and the it breaks down um, and it uses the NCCI I data um, and also estimates an average profitability of 3%, which you can you can make adjustments to. Um, but the estimated direct cost for fractures is $54,856. But then it estimates based on that ratio chart um, that OSHA has, you know, what your indirect costs would be in our combined combined total. But in order to make up for that cost with the, with for the business and you know how it would impact profitability for a fracture, we would have to make up $3.8 million in sales to cover the total cost of this incident. That's that's a big number. That's a lot of additional, you know, widgets or jobs or or you know, whatever our business is to, to um to bring in revenue just to cover this one incident, multiply that by however many fractures. We can also look at it by sprains, sprains, strains. One of the one of the top, um, you know, injury or injury natures that occurs. Um, you know, even still, you know, big number of direct costs, indirect costs, and you know, we need to uh, make up 2.1 million dollars in sales to cover the total. Um, for this loss to the business. So again, that's that's really kind of showing that that bottom of the iceberg here that our lost production, lost business, um, that's really the result of um, strains and sprains and um, cost avoidance. If we could prevent one strain, one sprain, one fracture, um, what is the, the revenue impact to the business? Next, we want to talk about insurance premiums. So another kind of, you know, beneath the surface um, expense. And we can't talk about insurance premiums without talking about our experience modification factor, um, which is that multiplier that's used to calculate your insurance premiums for your workers' compensation. As, and we, we all know um, the EMOD takes into account three years of lost history, not counting this 
current policy year, um, and that's calculated based off of our class code rating and how you you compare to others in your industry, and that will affect your insurance premiums. So, you know, if you have more insurance claims and a, a higher frequency and a higher severity than others in your industry, that is going to affect your insurance premiums for at least three years. So just like you know, same way if you have a car accident for speeding tickets, you're going to pay more in car insurance than if you have a clean driving record. The, the same is true with, um, you know, commercial insurance and workers' compensation. So safety does pay. Um, safety can help lower costs to the business from cost avoidance to keeping insurance premiums down. Um, another important factor to incorporate as we talk about, you know, the cost of doing nothing and, um, you know, convincing the business that, you uh, you know, that this is an, an area that we should invest. And lastly, reputation. So this, you know, area in terms of cost has probably the biggest impact or the potential to have um, the, the biggest impact on cost to the business. Um, you know, it could put your business reputation at risk by just putting off or, you know, as, as um, you know, Darren mentioned, you know, kind of this, well, it is what it is, or kind of shrug of the shoulder attitude um, towards your safety programs. I mean, just consider how an accidental release of chemicals at a refinery could hurt your public image or how a product safety recall on a manufacturer plant can, or, um, plant could harm your brand. Or, you know, Darren's um, analogy of the, the elevator if it was, um, focused on the, um, you know, the, the, the safety break, how, how that would change our world and um, we wouldn't have skyscrapers because he prioritized safety. Um, it really has had a big impact on, um, on our everyday life. So, you know, I like this quote at the bottom, how you do anything is, is how you do everything. Um, so it's it's kind of this this concept that or this this mindset um, and if your attitude about the product or service you're delivering is is good enough or no one will notice or it's not going to happen to me um, then you signal to others even subconsciously that you don't really respect your own work you don't um, you, you, it's not really the, the the quality is not important to you. Um, and that is true for our safety processes and programs that we put into place as well, that we don't you know, maybe, maybe care as much about um, our, our team and the, um, you know, the effort that they do and the, um, you know, protecting our workforce um, and, our, and our community and those that we um, impact by the products that we deliver. So with that, when we talked about you know th those costs, now we want to get into ROI a little bit and, and how we demonstrate that. And I think Darren's going to kick us off with um, you know a little kind of background about how ROI affects you know the rest of our life. Yeah, thanks, Jade. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the you know the how you do anything is how you'll do everything. Like I think we many times we think of like these segments of life that. I'm at work, I'm at home, um, I'm at school, uh, I'm, I'm doing something with the kids like that, that truly it really is kind of, I, I think we all recognize the fact that there's return on investment with our time, with our resources, which, which how we're doing things and, and, and work for sure. Right. Like in workplace safety and, and what we're doing in that front, but really there's, I think we can all relate to the personal return on investment in several facets, just personally with 
our health and fitness. We know as we put into that, we're, we can improve, um, you know, the, the health and the fitness and reduce disease and all of those things. Family and kids, education, community, how we, how we serve others, um, our career. Um, you know, the, I love the quote here, Vince Lombardi, the only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. And it takes effort. It takes like, let's get this thing moving forward. It's, it's one step at a time. Um, and as you go, you, you just gain muscle to whatever it is that you have going on. So just framing even ROI from a standpoint of this personal, which we all could probably relate to no different than some of the other facets as we're going to talk about with, with, uh, with work and workplace safety. So Jade, I'll, I'll pitch it back to you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, with, with the ROI conversation, there, there's a, there's a lot of research out there, but, you know, you can always lean back to, um, you know, some sources in, in the industry and in OSHA, National Safety Council, they have a lot to say about why safety is good business. And, um, on, you know, done a lot of studies related to what the return is on average. Um, you know, we, we talk with our customers all the time about the returns they're seeing and the reductions in, in um, insurance premiums and, um, you know, uh, um, in, incident um, severity and frequency. Um, but just on average, you know, OSHA demonstrates or um, communicates that businesses on average see a return of four to six dollars for every dollar invested in their workplace safety programs. And, and by comparison, the National Safety Council has done studies showing that shown that one dollar invested in injury prevention returns between two and six dollars. So two different sources really demonstrating the same thing that you know there are, is significant return to be gained um, by this investment. It is good business. Business. It shouldn't be seen as a um, as a, a cost center, but really an investment in in the company's future. Um, KBA has done uh, some surveys. We did a survey last year um, um, across many different industries: um, oil and gas, construction, manufacturing. Um, we surveyed, I think, four four to five hundred organizations, um, and those that participated in our survey. Um, were individuals that are responsible for their company's EHS program. They're most likely operational owners, um, companies, just, they're involved in the day-to-day -day, um, safety program operations. Um, and the majority of these respondents have um, a team of two to four members of their safety team. Um, company size ranged from 50 employees to 2,000 employees. And we really wanted to see, you know, what they say, and these are not just KBA customers. This is just kind of you know, market individuals. We wanted to see the differences in EHS or safety program performance of those that use a tool um, like EHS software and those that don't. And um, we kind of asked these questions from a, a process management standpoint and also a, a people focused standpoint um, and compared the evaluation of those of those users. So what was interesting about this, so the re respondents claiming good or excellent ratings um, were much higher, of, you know, no surprise there um, in EHS software users in all categories from incident reporting and tracking to data collection analysis. Um, data collection analysis was perhaps the most interesting metric 
Um, so when, when comparing the software users who reported good or excellent um, performance in this category, 55% versus 35% of non-software users reporting good or excellent. So those that use DHS software, they're able to get data. They're able to, you know, instead of spending time in the manual processes, they can do something different with their time. They have the data in front of them. They can see the results of what's being, what's happening. They can see what um, those, those, you know, at-risk behaviors, at-risk conditions, or where, where we're kind of bleeding within the organization that we need to focus more time and attention. So, it tells me the data collection is a significant issue. Um, separately, we looked at an engagement. So while employment engagement is, is pretty good overall, engagement is much higher with the HS software users um, that they report above average employee engagement 51% compared to only 37% who don't use EHS software. Um, and then secondly to this, you know, just EHS program capabilities? How do they kind of evaluate their, their overall program? Which statement um, best describes your program? We fully cover all of our risk and compliance issues. We have a strong program, but room for improvement. We have capabilities, but we're not, not where we should be, or we are, we are um, able to respond to critical issues, but can't anticipate plan or scale. Um, so, here was just kind of staggering results. 76% of EHS software users indicated their, their programmer is strong or, or complete. Um, you know, all the, all the, everyone, you know, responded that they still room for improvement. There, there always is, but um, it was interesting to see that the difference here with those software users have a lot more confidence in their program and their ability to recognize issues and response and really just the proactiveness of, of what they have in place. Um, sorry, having issues with my mouse here. All right, so just to give some customer examples, so we constantly want to hear our customer stories and you know what, how are they recognizing ROI? We offer them EHS software solutions and um, our customers have access to a portal where they can kind of discuss these things among, amongst themselves. They, they talk with others about how to gain buy-in from you know, their CFO or, or executives um, and convince them to invest in, in the program. Um, every customer always speaks to time savings and, and time leading to costs and um, but also costs or um, cost avoidance. Um, one customer, you know, worked with their procurement department and recognized over half a million dollars in savings just from cost avoidance because they're able to capture that data, visualize it, identify issues before something happens. So it really is that proactive management and you know you never know what you what you prevented because it never occurred. Um, sometimes that's hard to put on paper in, in an ROI case, um, but it is important um, to demonstrate and in, in, in a real real story. So with that I'll, I'll pass it back over to Darren to kind of wrap us up with a summary of our conversation today. Yeah thanks Jade. Um, yeah just just a few more slides here and then we'll we'll land the plane and and uh, glad to take any questions. But Kind of in summary, what's the cost of doing nothing? It's it's not nothing, right? I mean, it, we, we, it's proven time and again that it's it's very expensive. And as Jade laid out, some of the costs associated with unwanted events and and accidents and injuries, it's it's costly. 
Um, it costs the success of the business um, reputation. Uh, we always had the mentality of we're, we're doing work today to earn our, our next job. So you're kind of always in audition mode. Um, the minute you don't do anything and things fall apart, the success of the business will, will, will go right with it. Um, unwanted events negatively affect employees and assets. Um, you know, that's, that is going to be a cost. Kind of the hope and prayer, you know, mentality, that plan is short-term and dangerous. Um, you know, just hoping for the best. Uh, I, I have hope um, and I got faith, but, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to plan accordingly uh, to kind of mitigate, um, you know, mitigate any issues that are potentially in front of us. And then really the cost is quality leadership. You know, no decision is a decision. And as, it men as mentioned before, um, if someone's not going to step in and lead, that will get filled in by somebody or something. And so let's, let's take control of the narrative there as leaders and, and step in and, and make decisions. Uh, just a couple really quick things. I, you know, this is always something I enjoy sharing and talking about and really reminding myself of, but in 1983, an author by the name of Lauren Whitehead, and this was in the American Journal of Physics, kind of discovered that if you, if, you know, we all have probably done dominoes where you can line them up and push them down and watch them go. Um, but they not only can they topple each other, but they can topple bigger things. And kind of the study showed that a domino can knock over another domino one and a half times its size. So if we start with a two inch domino, it has the capacity to knock over a three inch domino, three inch can knock over a four and a half inch domino and so on. What, what's fun to think about is this compounding growth of that. And as you get to the 18th um, domino, so to speak, it's it's the size of the le Leaning Tower of Pisa. And the, the 23rd is the size of the Eiffel Tower. And the 29th is the size of the Empire State Building. And so just it's it's this starting small has this positive ripple effect to do bigger and better things. It, it reminds me a little bit of if you've seen um, Admiral William McMaven, uh, McRaven, there was a, he did the commencement address for University of Texas several years ago. And he, he kind of related this a little bit to Navy SEALs, which are like one of the more impressive, um, you know, soldier types that we have, the training they go through and all of that. But one of the one of the starting points is they learn to make their bed and they learn to make their bed with like just immaculate precision. Well, that leads into, you know, large things that they're able to accomplish on very dangerous missions. But it starts with a, a, a two inch domino and they're able to kind of grow it from that point. So, you know, we exercise one workout at a time. We read a book, a, one chapter at a time. We diet one meal at a time. Um, so it's just this idea of starting small and having deposits um, of effort, um, you know, kind of built in over time, we grow that. So really kind of taking that into what what opportunities do we have to do something? As I, as I kind of had mentioned, um, and maybe even going to the next slide here, even just kind of mentioning the, we're all on a journey, right? Like nobody fully arrives. There's a safety department is intact because there's going to be a need for that tomorrow. There's always um, weaknesses that we can strengthen. There's always opportunities for us to be better. And so I, th I think this really goes for everybody. Not, not that we're doing nothing, but where in that are we that we can do something? This is relating back to the example of some of what is doing nothing look like. What are some of those? These are just the, the counterparts to that. Um, you know, training in a way that is 
you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, I have a recipe to the job and I have a step-by-step process of what good looks like to do this. And then addressing hazards along the way to ensure that we're keeping people and equipment safe, um, that we're honoring the environment, that we're, we're, we're being diligent and efficient for the job owner, whatever the scenario is. Um, you know, establishing and having visible leadership. One mentor that I have, one of the greatest leadership things that have resonated with me over the, the years is pick up trash. Um, you know, the highest level person isn't beneath doing the most meaningful, meaningless job. Like it's all impactful in what we do and, and leading by example is, is huge. Um, you know, huddling up, planning for the work proactively, learning from lagging indicators, but also more importantly, leading indicators. That's the acts and behaviors that we see. Open channel of communication, providing positive feedback. That's a never ending effort um, to keep that as, you know, as, as, as open as possible and as effective as possible. Um, and so really just in summary, just those are just some, but we all have those things that, you know, we, what is that two inch domino um, what I find interesting here is you really can't get to the 10th domino for the most part and knock that down unless you've knocked down the first nine and the ninth is going to help you knock down the 10th. So hopefully that's a little bit of an encouragement um, just to kind of wrap us up here as we lead into lead into questions. But um, just an encouragement that, you know, g- getting started, doing something, let's let's kind of move this thing forward in an effort to continuously improve. So glad to wrap this up and move on to the question portion. Well, thank you so much to you both for this fantastic presentation. And before we start the Q&A, we want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. And your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. I guess to get to the the first question, um, is there a formula to determine cost to cover injuries um, in terms of sales? Yeah, so, um, and we'll, we'll provide the slides and I'm sure they'll be sent out, but there's um, links in the slides to, you know, OSHA's come up with a, a pretty good, easy to use calculator that's called the safety pays calculator. Um, and you can select the, you know, injury type and come up with different um, scenarios and options, but, uh, you know, based on their ratio of, you know, direct cost to indirect cost, it will come up with a profitability assessment of sales to cover individual type incidents. And if you can, if you want to, you know, maybe compare it to the previous year's loss reports, you can put in how many, how many incidents you had, the severity of them, and just come up with those profitability calculations to use in your ROI assessment and maybe a business case to present to a CFO to um, to get a budget for um, um, investment. I, I did forget to add as a reminder for our attendees, you'd like to ask a question, feel free to click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Um, and again, if we don't get to your question, all in answer questions will be forwarded along to our speakers. Um, uh, so just got another question. What be an example of tying in safety initiative to company company corporate goals? Alan, if you don't mind, re- repeat that. We'll make sure. I'm oh, so, no, sure. Question. That's okay. Uh, what would be an example of tying in safety initiatives to uh, company corporate goals? Tying in safety initiatives to company corporate goals. Goodness, that could mean so many different things. I mean, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, 
you know, I, I think a lot we we look at trends, um, kind of where what where have we been and where do we want to go? And there's going to be some goal oriented focus on that. And how do we measure our progress? Um, and then how do we, you know, you want you want to measure it to be able to manage it and to affect either change and or show your, your constant in, improvement towards that. So I, I think so many, um, you know, safety related initiatives, they dovetail very well and very close with the overall organizational goals. Um, you know, the, 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 the striving for revenue dollars, the reduction in, in lost, um, you know, sunken costs, uh, you know, keeping assets um, up and running, you know, there's, there's financial elements from a business perspective that, you know, safety becomes a, uh, it's a description, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it. I'm not, I'm not trying to simplify it, but it's, 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 we're safe, we're punctual, you know, it's like, it's a characteristic trait of the business, as we talked about reputation a little bit and earning your next job. I think, I think the right safety initiative, and that means, that means a lot for different people, because as mentioned, we all kind of have our, our weak muscle that we need to get into the gym and work out a little bit more. But how do we align that to impact? I mean, there's direct tied impact to you know, business goals, business impact from a safety standpoint. So I, I'm probably not being too specific there, but I, th I think there's a lot that could really answer that question. I actually had a question of my own. Um, any advice on getting an audience with the C-suite executives to kind of get their ear or make the business case for safety? Yeah, the, you, you know, the, the, the path that we have that we, we talk with a lot of safety managers, safety directors, C-level, um, you know, individuals that oversee that department. I think they know the, the, the struggles and the pinch points that are experienced. Um, what I always come with is really what are those? Like if we could, if we could reduce your time doing X, and give you that time back. What is X? Um, operationally speaking, when we deploy out a new, you know, a new feature, ultimately the goal is to become more compliant and more efficient, but take less time. And so I think if you can understand where are the pinch points, the hangups, the problem areas that are experienced across the organization, I would like to think that a C level all the way up to the president CEO. Um, would understand and relate to that. And a lot of times it's it's sometimes not safety specific, um, but safety can, just like with the elevator analogy, like there's some things we can do to speed up the process to ultimately get the job done on time, get done ahead of schedule, require less work hours, um, put less miles on our vehicles, like all of those kind of things. So I, I think it's a matter, for me, it's a matter of if coming to the table not only with the 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 here's the safety programming, but like really trying to understand where their struggles are. Because I think organizations are no different than people. They kind of have their own personalities within their own walls that it's just really good to understand what those are. Well, thank you so much to you both for this awesome presentation. Uh, we'd like to thank Jane Brainerd, uh, Jade Brainerd, um, Darren Boyd, the entire team from our sponsor KPA, and of course, all of our listeners. Thank you and have a safe day.